It is Wednesday, the 21st of February, 2018, and this is the promotional Malpractice Live Chat. Hello, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. I am the host of this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, we'll go for about, let's see, 83 to 84 minutes today or so, give or take, since I got started a little bit late. Appreciate you guys tuning in. Thank you so much. Please give the video a thumbs up and then subscribe to MMA Fighting. It's always great when you do that. Uh, today on the program, we'll get to your questions and comments, of course. I'm going to guess they're going to center around a few things. We're on the heels of Bellator 184, UFC Austin. We're looking ahead to UFC or, God damn, I'm talking to the effing microphone. Amateur. Amateur hour, this is. Let's try it one more time. My name is Luke Thomas. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. So today on the podcast, we will get to, let's see, UFC Orlando's coming up. UFC Austin just happened. Bellator happened. There's some arguments floating around that there is UFC. Is it a fad? Is it is it fading? What's the issue there? We'll get into all of that, plus your questions and comments on MMAfighting.com, where this video is embedded. Comments and questions that turn green get priority, but not exclusivity. Uh, okay, and today I am brought to you by Pepsi Zero. I don't think I've ever had it. Well, I have the top of this, but I mean, prior to that. You're going to say, Luke, you need a haircut. You're right. Luke, you need to trim your beard. You're right. But I'm busy. So there you go. I bought a beast of a laptop computer. Not a laptop. I'm sorry. A tower computer. I haven't bought a PC tower since the 90s or something. Uh, so I'm trying to get that set up. And that has been absolutely murdering me. It's there's a learning curve with these things when you take 20 years off of them. You know what I mean? So, um, help, please. I'm drowning. <laughs> it's it's very difficult to do. Uh, okay, I'm trying to think if there's any news and notes if I have for you guys. Uh, oh, yes. The next round of t-shirts will be available sometime starting next month, plus some extra surprises in there, including but not limited to Barbas t-shirts are ready. Designs have been approved. We're getting the inventory ready. All that's coming out. Now, that's just a tiny sliver of the surprise. There's actually a much bigger surprise than that. But next round of t-shirts, by the way, will be available in black. Um, the Barbas t-shirts are probably going to be black. That part we're still trying to figure out. But uh, those will be out starting not the beginning of next month, probably about a month from today. Just want to put that on your radar. That's coming out. Okay, let's get this going, shall we? We shall. All right. And again, sorry for the delay. All right, heavyweight division. Are things finally looking up for the heavyweight division at the moment? There are numerous po prospects like Lewis and Ganu, Blades, Volkov, Tuivasa, as well as some aging champions still kicking around. Is this one of the best spells for the division in recent years? To top that off, Stipe is an exciting champ and Kane is nearing a return. Um, it's, I think there's a debate to be had about whether Stipe is an exciting champ. He's had definitely his fair share of exciting fights. Don't misunderstand me. Yeah, I would say he's an exciting champ. I don't personally like going oh, over the fights, not because I don't think he's super skilled, but because he just doesn't. I'm not sure why I don't feel that way, to be honest. I have to think about that. You're probably right. He probably he probably is fair to label him an exciting champion. Be that as it may, uh, it seems to me that the UFC could actually make five or six exciting matchups with the contenders beneath Stipe to see who comes out on top over the next six to nine months before the champ, whoever that is, 
is ready to defend the belt. Couple of points here. Yes, it does finally appear like slowly but surely there's a new crop of younger guys coming in. The Volkov one, okay, I'll agree to it. Uh, you, you mentioned Lewis, Nganu, Blades, Volkov, and Tuivasa. Um, Blades in his 20s, Tuivasa in his 20s. How old is Volkov? I do not know off the top of my ha- head. Uh, 29, and he's born in October, so he just turned 29 or you know, relatively recently. Uh, let's see about some of these other donkeys. Uh, how old is uh, Derek Lewis? I believe he's in his 30s. But that's not the end of the world because we know how the division works. He is 33. And then last but certainly not least, Nganu, I believe, is still in his 20s. Or no, early 30s, I apologize. I believe he's roughly a similar age. 31, but he doesn't have nearly that many miles on him. So the answer to your to your point is yes. Uh, it's pretty clear that there are some new guys coming through. And that's very, very exciting. The division really needs it. So while I was pointing out, like, I don't know if Curtis Blades is like the next big star. He might be. He might not be, but young guy pushing through, pushing through, pushing through and having some of his own difficulties, but pushing through and then beating a guy like Mark Hunt at his, uh, not at his game necessarily, but in that contest, that's ultimately healthy. Mark Hunt has had a long storied uh, run, but he's in his forties. Now you want guys in their twenties to be able to beat guys like that. that. That's what should be happening. And and so ultimately, that was a pretty good thing. Um, but again, it doesn't necessarily mean he's the next big star. It just means that you need that process to take place so that the new crop can replace the old crop. So that's good. Um, and as you mentioned, it's more than just a couple of guys. Lewis, Nganu, Blades, Volkov, Tuivasa. Here's a couple of things I would caution you about, however. We don't really know how good Tuivasa is. He might be great. He might not be. He hasn't really fought anybody to tell us if he's great. That doesn't mean he's not. It just means we don't know. Always have a bit of apprehension about that. Volkov is an interesting guy, but I've seen him out-wrestle too many times. Now, his wrestling defense has gotten a lot better, but I'm still a little skeptical about his upside. Blades, nice win for him. Still got some work to do in the stand-up department, however. And Ganu, we all saw that he's got a lot of ability striking, and then there's some other issues he really has to manage. And then Lewis, we've seen him. To me, he's a lot better than he gets credit. But here's the thing. If I go to the rankings, and those are not the best measurement necessarily of who's who and what's what, but it gives you a sort of a general framework upon which to operate. I'll pull this up here. Number one, you have Francis. Two, Overeem. Three, Verdum. Uh, four, Velasquez. Five is Blades. Six, Hunt. Seven, Lewis. Eight, Volkov. Nine, Tybora. Ten, Struve. Here's my point. The process you are bringing up I don't really disagree with. It's good to finally see this guy, these guys getting fights. And when the fight between Stipe and Daniel was announced, and, and I can agree that Daniel's a more exciting contender than those guys, at least for now, um, there was a, you just didn't know who was going to emerge. What if Mark Hunt had beaten Blades? You know, So you would have Hunt at five and Blades at six, ostensibly, right? Somewhere around there, which would mean that the only guy of the ones you mentioned in the top five would be Francis. Now, Francis has beaten over him who was at two, um, you know, how would Francis do against Verdum? How would Francis do against Velasquez? And how would Francis do against Hunt? Uh, these are still some open questions. Here's my point. It's great to see that turnover. There is reason to be excited about these guys. Some of them are still in their 20s. Some of them still have a lot of developing left to go. But as it stands, Nganu is the only one who has really... I mean, I know Blades is number five. And that's interesting. But really, only Nganu is the one who has um, unseated 
so what I would call that institutional power of guys still in their 30s uh, a little bit. So to me, it's like, let's see how Francis can rebound, which is important. Let's see how far Blades can go. Let's see if the other ones can push through because getting in that 6 to 10 space, is it's not nothing. It's very helpful. But there's another gear that they need to hit to really, to really be – no, I think you're allowed to be excited now, but I mean – to really have hope that a new generation of excellent guys can emerge and then for their own time hold court, right? Push the old guys out and then and then reign over that division on their own. And as it stands, that might be true, still might not be true. We have to kind of wait and see how it plays out. But I do agree, It's there are some things slowly but surely happening at heavyweight now that haven't been happening enough of, and, and this is good to see. Uh, I don't think I'm in a position to answer the follow-up. Uh, yeah, I think it's all right. Someone says cutting the line, but with the layoffs at Vox impact MMA fighting? No, everyone's fine, as far as I know. All right. Let me help this guy out here for just a second. All right. All right, Mike Platinum Perry. Hi, Luke. Did you listen to Mike Perry's uh, on the inter- aerial show on Monday? I'm afraid I've not. How awesome is he? He's great. His backstory is great for building his profile, and he has a strong, steely demeanor, which gives him a certain star quality. I am pretty sure you have met or at least interviewed him. I have. What did you make of him as a character? Well, he's not a character; he's a real person. But I know what you mean, like in the in the in the in the looser sense of the word. Um, oops. Oops, sorry. Um, I got people are hitting me up on my G chat. I just noticed it now. Uh, okay, um, yes, he he is a uh, he's a unique person. I think is the way I would describe it. I, and and what I like about him is I like these guys that surprise you, right? Derek Lewis is a little bit like that too. These guys who have a sort of a working class background and some sometimes really disadvantaged. Uh, and then look, they don't necessarily sound professorial when they talk, but you can clearly tell it's not. A function of intelligence necessarily it's a function of um uh formal academic training what i mean to say is these guys are as bright as anybody else and they're thoughtful and they think about their place in the world and they have a vision for themselves and yet they still keep some of that you know tough exterior that's not phony it's real it's, it's sort of shaped in who they are and so it's this conflation of opposites it's these hidden surprises everywhere um and I think Mike has slowly shown parts of his personality. He's got some parts of his personality that, you know, are not necessarily the best. I think he's he's made some relatively insensitive comments. I don't think those are the biggest deal in the world. I'm just sort of pointing out it's a guy in transition. But, um, but yeah, I, I think very highly of his ability, and I think he's getting better. And, again, what I like the most is you see somebody, and if you just if you were lazy about it and you didn't really take the time to consider who they are or think about it, you might have a certain impression about him. And then after the fact, when you really begin to know them more, sometimes people kind of are who you think they are. And I, I don't I don't know that Mike Perry is necessarily that way. I, I, I would submit he's different, actually. Someone says, ability-wise, he appears to be one of the most naturally gifted, albeit very raw, fighters in the organization. But I worry that he needs to join a better camp in order to make a move into the top 10. He's training with Jacare now, so I hope that he can at least add some improvements to his game. I'm sure he will. Who would he need to fight, assuming he wins this weekend? in order to give himself the best chance of putting himself up against the elite of the division. It seems Cerrone has a target on his back 
for all the up-and-comers waiting to make a name for themselves. Serenia sounds like he wants to go back down to 155, though, right? So we'll see what happens with that. So let's go to welterweight. Mike Perry currently sits at – oh, he's not ranked. Uh, interesting. Let me go to the fight card then very quickly. Here we are. Pulling that up. Uh, so Mike Perry going to be facing off against Max Griffin. Max Griffin is a talented guy, but a win over him is probably not going to get him um, that which he needs to move ahead in terms of a big name. So let's go back to those rankings. Let's see who's in the top 11 to 15. You have Donald Cerrone, assuming he stays there. Carlos Condit, he's booked up. Gunnar Nelson's available. Don Kyung Kim, I believe, is available. And then Yancey Medeiros, of course, he just lost. The Yancey Medeiros-Mike Perry fight would be kind of interesting. Boy, you'd be putting Yancey Medeiros in the wood chipper by doing that, though. Not saying he wouldn't win, but just look at all the guys Yancey has fought and the, the way those fights have looked. Oof, you're going to give him a Mike Perry fight after a Donald Cerrone fight? That's a, that's a tough ask for anybody. Um, the Gunnar Nelson fight is intriguing. You know, two different styles. One guy really good on the ground. Um, different style of striking on the feet. Uh, that could be a really interesting contest. But somebody in that space uh, really needs to give him a shot. So maybe it's Cerrone. Maybe 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 because Cerrone won against Medeiros, you could do that. Uh, I think a Don Cerrone-Mike Perry fight, assuming he wants to stay at welterweight, that would be A-OK with your boy. Someone says, it was so refreshing to see a fighter come out and speak from the heart about issues he's faced and just how tough it can be for a lot of fighters coming up. Yeah. Mike Perry has not had it easy in life. And the fact that he's gotten as far as he has and potentially could go even further, you know, is a testament to his resiliency and um and inner strength. Got got guys of the, the real deal Holyfield, man. Ovin St. Prue. Is OSP a sleeper in the light heavyweight division? The guy has three wins in a row, all via finish, albeit one against a pumped up middleweight, you know, Kami, I believe. And looks a marked improvement on the version we saw get dropped by Manoa or struggle against Volkan. He has athleticism and seems to be improving on all aspects of his game of late. What improvements have you seen in his game over the last year? Do you expect him to beat Latifi on Saturday? And what who would lie in store for him if he next wants to get a win? Yeah, I actually called one of his fights. I believe it was his fight against, God, did he fight Pedro Hizo? Who was that? He fought here in D.C., Remember, he was from that Tennessee circuit, and at the time, DC was holding fights. Um, he fought. It was called. It was a one-time show. The guy who ran the show owned uh, like a series of Honda dealerships in the area. Uh, I believe the Yamasakis were the matchmakers for that car, if you can believe that. This was yeah, Washington Combat Battle of the Legends. No, he fought Claudio Godoy. That's right. Um, but I think Pedro Hizo fought on that card. In any case, he beat Godoy after the first round. I think he broke his arm and he couldn't continue. And I remember the time that the guy looked like he had some ability, but he was really raw. Remember, it used to be – there's a few things he's really improved on. Uh, number one, his own balance. If you guys notice, he used to be kind of wobbly in his stance a little bit, and now he really has a much better command of um, not merely his balance generally, but how to use it, like when to throw, how to throw, but like better mechanics leads to better balance. So like he's just overall really sharpened up his tools. His coach might be the friendliest human being on earth. People, you know, you don't hear people saying that you might, for example, say that Mike Perry needs to change camps. You don't want to hear that from OSP. OSP is one of these guys who's been like, I'm going to stay at the small camp and I'm just going to build from there. And he's, he's cross-trained, of course, a little bit, but has been, um, has been a big believer in sticking to the guy who brought him to the dance. I forget the gentleman's name, but 
in any case, uh, so I would say he's improved in number one and just the his the his efficiency, his mechanics have gotten better. I would say his wrestling has come a really long way. He kind of always sort of naturally was suited for striking, um, although he has good ground and pound too. But his defensive wrestling has come a long way. His offensive wrestling has come a long way. He's a surprisingly adept scrambler. It's not necessarily that he just stuffs all takedowns and they never happen. Sometimes guys get a little bit – they move the ball a little bit forward. And uh, they get him to the ground for just a second. But as a big guy, he can spring up to his feet. And not just through the common ways you see somebody do it against the fence. Like in the middle of the cage, he can do it too. So that's been impressive to watch. Um, and just sort of a recognition about what works for him. You know, we talk about how Derek Lewis fights in a way that makes sense for him. Not really, again, reserving himself and, and waiting until the right opportunity. Um, or Romero, same way. But just sort of doing the things that they know that they're good at. Kind of sticking to them trying to eliminate the other things in a fight where they're not all that great. And so and so as a consequence, the fight just looks like it should be an Ovin St. Proof fight. They're fighting in ways that speak to their own strengths rather than just sort of saying, I'm going to beat this guy at his own game or I'm not going to stick to what I'm good at. He had some problems with that maybe early. But I think I would say the biggest, the biggest, biggest upgrade, efficiency, mechanics, takedown defense, and scrambling. Those are the ones that really stand out to me. And for a big guy to be able to move the way he can and to resist takedowns the way he has been. Uh, it's been pretty impressive. I still think he has a little bit of problem like with distance issues, but um, even then, you know, who did he knock out with the uh, head, with a, with a punch that he disguised and then threw the head kick right behind it. That was uh, Corey Anderson. Yeah. So even that's getting better. Pretty amazing guy. James Vic. Hi Luke. How are you? Caffeinated. Uh, this might be an unpopular opinion, but for me, the biggest disappointment of last weekend was James Vick. Really? After all the noise he was making about fighters avoiding him and the UFC not getting behind him, I really thought he was going to come out guns blazing with a point to prove so he could undeniably, so he could be undeniably a top contender. Instead, and this is strictly my opinion, he played it safe. Ronaldo is by no means a donk, but if Vick had put but if Vic had of put in, you mean if Vic would have uh, put in a huge performance with a finish, he could have made the UFC sit up, take notice, and give him the top of the division fighters he was looking to compete against. I also thought he wasted an opportunity in the cage after saying he's looking to fight Conor Habib and Tony, which we know is not going to happen soon. Is this harsh criticism? What are your thoughts? All the best from Ireland. Uh, Vic, someone says Vic coasted in the final round. And it doesn't win him any favors, which he has to realize. Everyone knows his wins aren't all treated equally. Diss the employer combined with playing it safe equals unfavorable outcome. Well, he didn't diss the employer. He dissed the guys who wouldn't fight him in the top 10. It's very, very different. Uh, now, he said he was kind of upset he wasn't headlining the Austin card, but he got to compete on the Austin card. And once that happened, he his criticisms more or less dissipated. Uh, I'd say it's a little harsh. I'd say it's a little harsh. Um, so let's look at, if we can... Let's look at Mr. Trinaldo's record. All right. So let's see here. Masaran Duba. Yes. All right. He lost to James Vick via decision. He did get finished by Kevin Lee, which says something. He lost via decision to Michael Chiesa. He got finished way back five years ago by Peter Holman or Peter Holman. And then he lost to Gleason Tebow. And then, uh, you know, 2010, I don't even really take seriously. So there's been good fighters who have not finished him. Gleason Tebow, Kiesa, and Vic all didn't finish him, although they did beat him. Um, you could say that the ones that did, Piotr Holman, 
or Peter Holman is not uh, an elite uh, lightweight, and Kevin Lee is, and that's a pretty amazing win that he has. But the point being is, it's hard to know exactly what it means. Does it mean he coasted? He probably could have taken a little bit more risk in that third round, but Trinaldo's a guy that's hard to take a risk against. He's super strong. He has good takedown defense. Uh, he can. He has a good chin. He's very heavy-handed. He's experienced. It's just hard. You know, everyone's like, "Oh, you got to really go out there and put it on him and put out guns blazing." Well, okay, let's back up a step. What does that mean, right? Oh, it's to come out guns blazing. What What exactly does that mean, right? What from a from you saying the words guns blazing? I'm not picking on you. I'm just sort of trying to figure it out here. From someone saying guns blazing, all the way to a, a tactical change in what he did. What are you saying exactly? Because it's easy just to zoom back and go, well. He could have done more. Okay, what? Now, I'm not a coach. Neither are you. We're sort of spitballing here. I agree that there probably is something to be said for more. However, uh, James Vick, if you have one criticism of his ability, it's that he's a little bit hittable. And you're talking about a guy who has a very powerful overhand uh, punch. You know, trying to mix it up with him a little bit more is difficult to do. Plus, you're going to wear yourself out trying to get the takedown if you really want to go that direction as well. So, um I'm not saying that you, you're wrong and that more was potentially available to him. I think what I'm asking is, if you're going to say these things, we need to be able to clearly identify what that is. And to me, it's I, I, I don't really have much of an issue with his performance, to be quite honest. I think what you can say afterwards is, n- number one, had you finished him, that would have put you in some fairly rare company. That's number one. Number two, by not finishing him, what does that tell us? Does that tell us you're actually not elite? That you're a step down from the Kevin Lees of the world? I don't know that one result will tell you that, but I think it certainly brings into question going forward how much hype we should uh, provide and, 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 and ascribe to him. So I'm not really disappointed uh, necessarily. Plus, even if you knock these guys out, someone might come up and say, oh, well, I'll stop you. But they also might say, yeah, here's a guy with no name and he's knocking dudes out. I'm especially not going to fight him. So there's it's it's a bit of a two way street there. So I think that you can you can argue that more should have been done, um, at least a little bit. But it's a hard argument to make because all of those things would substantially, given his skill set and given his liabilities, would substantially up the risk for defeat. I think the better argument to make is, okay, great win, strong performance, but does it tell us that he's really among the elite? Like this is a guy who you can just tell is destined for the top five. And I think pumping the brakes on that is is the better argument to make versus, you know, you got to go out there guns blazing. How? How? Uh, the guys who take more risks like that are the guys who usually are able to take more risk like that because they might have less liabilities with – respect to the particular opponent that they're facing or they might have a unique set of strengths relative to the opponent that they're facing very few guys go out there guns blazing um su- such as a the term exists and do well with it like if you know you you can up the if you know you're willing to take on more risk because you think the risk reward ratio is somewhat more in your favor, you're naturally going to have more success as a consequence. I guess I'm pointing out, like, there's a lot of guys, a lot of guys who are like, I'm going to just, I'm going to go out there guns blazing, and then they get viciously KO'd, or they lose, or they take a lot of damage, or something like that. 
Plus, this guy wants to compete a lot this year. You know, I don't think he wanted to necessarily, you know, mix it up too much. Also, something to be said for the fact that he was able to keep range on a guy. Like, there's a degree of fight acumen in that. So, it's hard to draw broad conclusions after one contest. I'm willing to entertain the idea that it's possible, um, you know, a top five future is a little bit out of reach. But even then, I, I am a little bit hesitant to say that. Uh, UFC's product presentation. I hope that the week has been most delightful to you. It certainly has. Of late, I've seen some really good articles about the UFC's struggles concerning audiences and how there have been a notable shift in demographics. Not a notable shift. Well, sort of. It's not like they went from one demographic to another one. They just got one and then aged with it. It's a little bit different, but I know what you mean. It actually made me think of the WWE, which is constantly tinkering with its visual presentation on all levels. For example, as minor as it seems, they constantly change the opening graphics and songs of their weekly show opening and change the announcing teams. Additionally, their video package editing is superb and shifts approaches for the pay-per-views. The reason I bring this up is that I've always felt that the WWE, even with their own justified criticisms, has always understood the need to change those small things when running such a long-time product, while the UFC has basically stuck to the same approach. While UFC's issues are many, do you think it is fair to argue that one of the UFC's problems is a seeming reluctance to change their presentation, especially since I feel they put a lot more emphasis on the spectacle and show than the traditional sports like tennis. Yes. Now, let's talk about some fairness issues for them. They have uh, modernized. This is going to sound small, but it's not actually. It's kind of important. They've modernized their uh, branding and logos and imaging, um, I think, around, what, 2015, 2016, somewhere around there. Uh, and even before that, but they've at least done some, taken some steps to keep that relatively uh, modern. Um, I'll give them some, also some credit, you know, relative to a lot of other, the sports leagues, they were very much first, uh, or at least leading the way anyway, in terms of being digitally native content and having digitally native content and using social media in ways that a lot of the other leagues, NBA notwithstanding, um, have been, you know, reluctant to do so and sort of been forced into by just the, the, the tide of how things have gone. So there's that. Um, and it, it's just not fair to say that generally the product is is stuck in time. But there are certain aspects of it stuck in time. Like, for example, I make this argument all the time and people are like, no, keep it. Or LOL, it's just a joke. Yo, man, it's not a joke. It's not a joke. How is it possible that you have a song that wasn't even good in 20, whatever it was, 2005, 2006, from a band that's not even together anymore? Uh, and you're doing that to open your pay-per-views. It's insane. It's completely insane. You are, you are, you are. Every time you do that, you are dating your product. Every time, every time you are telling. I mean, look, the UFC sort of hit pay dirt in what 2005 or so, a little bit before that. But let's say 2005 uh, with the Ultimate Fighter. We're now in 2018. There's going to be 13 year olds. Do you think they even know or care what STEM is or when they hear it? Uh, they give an F or people who are five years old when the UFC had paid her. Now they're 18. Do you think they care about STEM? It sounds like, Oh, jokey, jokey. You know, you just don't like it. Um, cause it's new metal. Well, that's part of it. It's also because what message are you sending to the world? You're telling them that, that that's, that's what you're about. I was going back and like, like if you look at what other sports leagues do, pick any of them, NBA, major league baseball, whatever. And, and they all do the same thing. Basically, they shop out production to the television networks. So the television networks airs all their games. So let's pick, let's pick for example, ESPN's 
NBA. Let me play that as a matter of fact. So it, there's nothing special about it. And I'm just going to play it off the microphone. I'm not going to play it here. ESPN NBA theme song. All right, and this is one they've been using for a while. There's nothing special about this. All right. Here we go. Uh, let's see. Here. God, it's a terrible recording. Jesus. Hear that? Okay, that's their theme song for just the regular games throughout the course of the season when they're on in, on ESPN. Nothing special about it, right? You just so you can it's it's it stands out to you because you can remember it. It's got this sort of classical music, you know, up tempo kind of vibe to it, right? But when they do their playoffs, every year they get a new artist. You know what that was for last year? Hold on. This is what it was for last year. NBA playoffs. This is what it was for last year. Listen to this. Ready? No questions in the game. And they're showing highlights of all the guys no talking to the media. Commitment. Those two teams have a rivalry. And one has what we all want. Yeah. Showing highlights of all the action. All here with this right? Style. Come on. The motivation. You're you're just telling your audience you're, you don't you can pick another song besides Kendrick Lamar Lamar's Be Humble or Humble whatever you can pick another song but look what they're doing every year they're tying to that every year with their playoffs so with your with your pay per views I'm not saying you have to have a new song every pay per view but every so often you got to update it you have to you have to keep in contact with what's current out there and 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 it it just like here's something you have to always keep in mind so I'm 38 years old okay. I didn't realize this when I was 25 because no one tells you this, or or at least when they tell you this, that you don't believe it. Let's say you're watching this now and you're 25 years old. I'm not saying you're not going to start listening to some additional new music as you go along, but basically whatever you're listening to now will define how you listen to music the rest of your life. That will that will define your sensibilities. You think what you like is awesome because your day is the day. No, it's just your day. And then there'll be another day that comes along and another day that comes along. And another day that comes along. Doug Stanhope, the comedian, talks about this. The bar is always 23. And when you're 23, you go to the bar, you think that's just, this is amazing. But as you get older, you begin to realize it, it stays that way. I guess what I'm trying to point out is you have to constantly appeal. If you want to keep those demos, you have to find interesting ways about keeping them or refreshing the band. The, the brand basketball is old as dirt, but they keep finding new and interesting ways, at least from atmospherics, to pull in younger audiences and they they make they not only not make it dramatic and exciting and different and new but they tie it to what's hot like if you think you're so hot that you can make people like things they don't like anymore well great good luck with that but the reality is there's going to be a broad set of uh, tastes that that each you know year or generation is going to have you need to tie your product to that in as much as you can if you want to have some any kind of sustaining or at least be viewed as relatively current so, look, most of these, and this is, I'm just picking on this as an example. You can go back with like the Ultimate Fighter. How is it possible we're in 2018 and we still think, let's put guys in a house and then monitor how zany they get? And this will be a great way to, to sell the product. Now, part of this is probably that they're just trying to fill, they, they literally have to, 
fulfill their contract to Fox. Okay, fine. You know, you just have to sort of get through it until this is over. But I, I mean, if they renew this show and the next deal, I'm going to be surprised unless it has some sort of major, major overall. It's time to retire it. That notion of putting people in a house and just seeing what happens, um, it, it, it's mostly, not entirely, but it's mostly played out. It mostly doesn't really work. Um, and there's better ways to recruit talent. I'm just pointing out there's a lot of different things you can you can you can look at and you can say this has only been iterated since 2005. It's not been overturned or dramatically refreshed or really you know there's been a new push to just revitalize it. It's just been iterated over time. We need something like this. Tie it to your, tie it to the modernity. Don't tie it to posterity. That's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's a thousand different ways you could go with this. Uh, mediocre Sage Northcutt, the person puts mediocre in quotes, is Sage a case of great athlete, mediocre fighter? He hasn't seemed to improve at all since joining the UFC, struggling against seemingly inferior athletes. At this point, I'm not sure he'll even be top 10, let alone champion. Uh, your thoughts? Well, I don't think you're wrong, but someone goes, he's 20 and he's shown improvement. I'll wreck it so Luke can dispel these notions. Well, I'm not going to dispel too much. Because I partly agree. Look, uh, partly is the key word here. If you look at him and you realize, is he 20 or 21, whatever he is, sure, you you need to pump the brakes a little bit. He's he's he is First of all, he is improving. And you can't take that away from him. The question is, is he improving enough fight over fight for that to matter? Right? You can make all the improvements in the world, but there's a threshold you have to reach for that to be of any kind of value. Are you reaching that? That's what we need to know. And that's where that the answer becomes a little bit dicey. Um, it's too early to say. And I think we have to wait and just see what happens here. Um, I thought he lost that fight. And if Thibaut Guti fought any differently, I mean, that would mean Sage won that fight because one, they were in Texas, and two, because Guti did everything possible to give that contest away. And the other part is I thought he made a good point. Like he just fought three months ago at UFC Norfolk. Like you got to give it some time before. Um, before you can, you know, really get a full measurement. Plus, I thought he looked a lot better in that contest than he had in some time. So my thought is, take six months off, then come back. Let's see how he looks then. Or, you know, what was it February, March, April, May, June, July? Maybe come back around July or August, uh, and let's see how he looks around that time. That would be a little bit more of a, a gauge to tell us what's happening. But I can tell you this, you know, just saying, well, he's 20, he'll get better. I've got news for you. Uh, people don't have tr trouble understanding this. You can be super athletic, you can train really hard, you can want to get better, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to, at least enough for it to matter for the Ultimate Fighting Championship. This is a hard thing for people to accept. They just think that if you go to a gym and you, you have good genetics and you train really hard and you eat right and you train, you'll get better. Yes, you will get better. Of course you'll get better. Everyone can get better. Fat slobs can get better. Great athletes can get better. Men, women, tall, short, everyone can get better. The question is, can you get better enough to make all the leaps to reach a certain level of excellence? If you study, you'll do better on a test. That doesn't mean you're going to get into Harvard, right? Oh, I made improvements on my SATs. I went from 1,200 to 1,400. Now, 1,400 is a pretty good score. If we're talking out of 1,600, it's not enough to get into Harvard unless you got a bunch of other things going on. And this is my point. Yeah, he's absolutely making improvements. And it absolutely is worth taking a step back, taking a deep breath, Let's see how things go um, because he did show improvement in Norfolk and he is 20 years old and he does train with a good team. However, if after the next one or two fights, 
he's still making this really incremental jumps and he's showing some of the same weaknesses, then then probably you can begin to make some firmer conclusions. We're not there yet, and I'm perfectly willing to admit that. But everyone's being like, oh, yeah, just keep training. You'll be fine. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. And there are guys who are not nearly as good of an athlete who can train as hard and get better as fighters because they might be just sort of better suited for the activity. Fighting is an, is an interesting thing. I've talked about this before. Fighting is not something – People get bitter when I say this. Look, if you treat something enough like a sport, eventually it just becomes a sport. So in that sense, I do think MMA is a sport. But I don't think fighting is a sport. Fighting is something that happens not only uh, in humans. It happens across the animal kingdom, as I've talked about before, for territorial rights, for mating rights, um, for pecking order rights, and whatever animal hierarchy we are discussing here, whether it's chimps or whether it's dolphins or something. Fighting is something that happens. Mixed martial arts is merely the application of rules and standards to it, right? But it's still just fighting. You're fist fighting. That's what's what you're doing. We've taken away certain things. We've included some oversight. Um, we've recruited best practices. We've eliminated, at least at the high level, poorer athletes. But it's fighting. But what the interesting component about that is, because it's not necessarily some, it's not like the fastest or strongest man on earth or something, you're getting people who, who are not necessarily as good of an athlete as, let's say, Yoel Romero, who can succeed a lot because um, they are wired for combat. Now, it just so happens that um, at the highest level, having a there's probably some kind of minimum degree of athleticism required to have any kind of success, but there can be variances in there, especially in the type of athleticism or how that athleticism translates. I'm just pointing out, Terrell Owens is probably a better athlete than Ver in his prime anyway. He was probably a better athlete than almost any other UFC fighter, but I don't know that you know, let's, it's not, because he's that level of an athlete, he would be the best fighter ever. There's another je ne sais quoi in there where you have to be wired for that kind of activity. Derek Lewis was sort of hinting at it. Like, you have to gear yourself up to, you know, hurt a guy. Not everyone has that. Or to be hurt and then persevere. Um, and and so Sage Northcutt is a phenomenal athlete. I mean, homeboy's out here bending pans and leaping tall buildings in a single bound. It's incredible, right? But... Um, and again, I'll say it again, you have to pump the brakes and we'll just see what happens. But I don't want folks thinking that because he's athletic and he trains hard, it's just automatic he'll turn into a good fighter or one capable of this level. That is not guaranteed at all, at all. You have to show the requisite improvement. Uh, women's divisions. Let me get a swig of the old Pepsi One. This is what Pepsi Max used to be? Or Pepsi Zero, it's called. I don't know. Look at the women's divisions actually delivering at the moment. Here's another question. Y'all seem real happy. Bar matchups, I think you mean excluding matchups involving a handful of fighters across the four women's divisions like Nunes, Rose, JJ, Valentina, Cyborg, Holly Holm. The rest of the roster seem to struggle to deliver exciting matchups and in turn create viable, decent contenders at the top. Do you think the women's divisions have developed as well as the UFC have hoped? Well, without talking to the UFC and understanding their expectations, I don't know. Or do you think they're looking to make shallow divisions but create a couple of stars in each one in order to have a good title fight every couple of months or my way off? Is there anything the UFC can do to improve this? As I mentioned before, I don't really consider Invicta a for-profit operation, although they might be. I consider it more a non-profit because they are doing the work that the free market – if you left it to just the free market, would the free market create enough opportunity for women's divisions at the lower levels to service the upper level divisions without the UFC really investing in some kind of organization that could 
straighten things out like Invicta. I don't know the answer to that, but my hunch is probably not, not enough anyway. Um, so I've never really viewed them in that, in that, in that sense. So you're asking me like, you know, if that occurs to me, I'm sure it occurred to them as well. You know, has it developed as they've hoped? I don't know. Um, have they made some improvements? Absolutely. Um, the overall quality has jumped and the depths have jumped. It's just that it's hard to notice at times because if you just still had bantam weight, you probably wouldn't be, you might say, yeah, it's got a bit of a downturn now, but you wouldn't necessarily say that it's like some sort of existential crisis where there's just, it's flatline. Cause that's not true. Um, has it, was it, was like important? I do think that the, what you're getting at is correct. Are they looking to make shallow divisions, but create a couple of stars in each in order to have a good title fight every couple of months? If you talk to people involved in the UFC, they'll tell you you need about 20, 25, really 30, 35, but you can get away with 20, 25 fighters to make a division. Um, but if you know you only have 20 to 25 because you just can't support more on the roster generally, then you're probably, yeah, I mean, you're hoping to get improvement. And yeah, you're hoping that some of these smaller organizations service that in some capacity. But really what you're trying to do is, I think, just make it deadline to deadline. You're just trying to see if you can get enough fights um, for that to matter over the long haul uh, or over the, over the over the annual calendar, right? Like, yes, we do want this to improve, but we don't really have the resources to dig down and make it something. Plus, if we had 30 to 35, let's say, straw weights, what would the level of fighting look like? It'd be probably really bad. Um, but if we can keep a smaller roster and then just sort of occasionally feed these guys up and get title fights, uh, in the meanwhile, we can have some rematches. Um, I think that's probably okay with that. What else can you really do? Uh, let's see. We talked about this on the MMA beat one time, but it's come up again. Greatest fighter to never hold a UFC title. Someone says Cowboy, Faber, Cub, Rory. These are some suggestions. Um, you don't count Tony. He's one. Habib is another. Yoel Romero. I think for sure. Without a shadow of a doubt, Yoel Romero is the best middleweight to never hold a title. Easy call on that one. You think about all the other middleweights who've held titles that he's better than. Um, is he better than Dan Henderson? Now, Dan Henderson held two titles in the same at the same time, two different weight classes, so that complicates it a little bit. But you know, Marilla Bustamante held the title at, in, the, in the UFC. He's definitely better than that. Um, there's a bunch you can go through. Even Machida. Now he didn't hold it at middleweight, but he is a middleweight. Held it at light heavyweight, and you know. Old Romero gave him the business. So for sure, that's the case. But all time, Cowboy's a big one. I would say Romero's got a better shot because Romero Romero has wins over uh, Jacare, close one, but he has a win, clear win over Machida, clear win over Weidman, clear win over Rockhold. Those are four champs if you count UFC and Strike Force. I mean, that's just a ridiculous resume. It's a ridiculous resume. He might be your best. Because, uh, I don't know, I mean, Rory is a little bit different because Rory is close. He was on his way to beating Lawler but didn't. But he did beat Woodley, who, of course, is the champ, who then beat Lawler. Um, he's got the – but he lost to Carlos Condit, so that kind of – but he was early. It's 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 a tough call. I I might say I might say Romero, um, over the, at least over these other suggestions. And Jacques Array didn't hold a UFC con a belt, but he did hold a strike force belt, which is a Zufa belt, technically. But he lost to Rockhold. So there's that. Um, it's it's a tough call. So it says favors WEC title run absolutely counts. Zufa owned the division. Yeah, it counts. It, it, sure. The only problem is that they didn't have the UFC on the cage at that time. I'll never be triggered by uh da 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 da. -da, -da. 
and there's these huge debates. If you guys want to go check this out between the various uh, various uh, parties here. By the way, people add Pedro Hizzo, Eves Edwards, Crocop. Crocop's a big one. Florian, and then Hendo. Someone says, uh, Hizzo lost to Randleman but got screwed in the fight with Randy. That's true. Eves Edwards was the man. His win over Josh Thompson was one of the most incredible knockouts of all time. Crocop didn't have the best UFC run, but, you know, uh, pretty storied career. Florian uh, contended twice in two different weight classes. Hendo did have the pride belts, didn't have the UFC belts. Uh, Vanderlei Silva fought against Tito, never challenged for one again. Vanderlei Silva is an interesting one. Hmm. Uh, and then there's dudes like Chad Mendez, Joseph Benavidez. There you go. And Condit held a belt. No, Gary held a belt, but they're interim belts. So that kind of complicates it a little bit too. Uh, you could say Nick Diaz, and I know he lost, but there was a time when Nick Diaz was really, 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 really not. He's, oh, he's he's still good. He's always been good, but he was beating. He was active and beating really good guys, you know. Uh, so yeah, there's a, there's there's a few. There's a few. Uh, okay, no gloves in MMA. Good question. Uh, Luke Joe Rogan is an advocate for no gloves in MMA. What are your thoughts on this? Do you believe this would make the sport more or less dangerous for the striking elements? Would it improve jujitsu aspects of the game? However, would this decrease the acceptance of the sport in the mainstream as it would reflect badly given it would look like human cockfighting? Uh, I, I will go the other way. What is this? Y'all are having some contentious debates in the comments today. Good Lord. Um. All right, so here's the argument, and it's actually a pretty strong argument. Gloves have been a bad thing for the UFC. Now, it's a complicated argument because part of it is true and part of it is clearly not true. So let's talk about the parts that are not true. That 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 If I posit that gloves have been bad for MMA, you would say, oh, that's not true. You're partly right. So here's how it's not true. The basic explanation is that um, there was a time it, be it was believed that if you just went in there bare knuckle, especially given the origins of the MM, of, of NHB and how it looked, um, it just felt lawless doing that. It was almost as if like adding a helmet in football, right? If you put the helmet on, well, now this is protective gear. This this clearly has a protective element to it. Um, and on some level, I suppose that is true. It does ostensibly, depending on what kind of impact you're taking, protect your head a little bit. But the reality is it also changes the equation and the cost-benefit analysis of what kinds of trauma you're then willing to take. Because now that you have this armor, you're going to spear guys and have helmet-to-helmet -helmet contact and things like that. The idea is that if you never have had that, you would uh, – well, hold on. So let, me, let me stick there. It's the same thing with the gloves. The gloves, it was like – by putting them on, yes, they were different than boxing gloves, but they had enough padding. It just felt like, well, we're doing something to protect these athletes here. We're putting padding on his hand. That will probably confer benefit to the guy being punched. Padding on the hand will probably, along with the you know wrapping the hands to the extent that they do that, that will probably protect the fighter. We're just taking some minimal but important safety measures um, uh, to protect these guys. And it just from an aesthetic standpoint, if you go from no gloves and now they're wearing gloves, you feel like, it just in your your natural intuition is to say, oh well, that's progress, you know. But as I mentioned, it creates perverse incentives because it turns out that if you don't have hand protection, you're uh, you are probably going to be over time. This will take time to set in, 
But over time, you're going to recognize that you're going to not want to punch in a lot of different situations. You're going to want to not punch in a lot of uh, circumstances that now you might be willing to believe you could. Because what they don't do is they don't protect you being punched all that much, if at all. Uh, they, but they do slightly protect my hand. So now I'm going to take more risks with it. And by taking more risks, I'm now going to be handing over more trauma over time. And so the notion is that if you removed it, like if you took away, um, you know, so like rugby is, I mean, this is a bad analogy, but if you just sort of think of like, is rugby like football, American football, minus the helmets. Now, let's be clear about this. Rugby still has concussion issues, a lot of them. But maybe not like the NFL because you just don't see – you see vicious contact in rugby. Let's be 100% clear about it. But you just don't see the kind of spearing that you do uh, when guys feel like they're armored up uh, in order to do that. They take a f- – so they don't take risks. They take risks, man. I mean, the, rugby is a – I have a lot of respect for rugby. Love it. Uh, it's a brutal game. But it's just the, the, the way in which guys turn into human battering rams – a little bit different relative to rugby because they feel like not only with the helmets but with the shoulder pads and and everything else. So that's the idea. The problem for me is number one, it's a hard argument to make for people. Oh, what you need in a race car is not a seat. It sort of sounds like you should race in a race car but without a seatbelt because you take less risk. Probably let's let's assume that's true. But for some people, they're going to be they're going to say, well, you're just going to take risk anyway, so it's going to mean more broken hands. Now that's just a theorization. We don't really know, but it's one way to consider that. Plus, you're going to say, really? You want to have a race car with no seatbelts? Even if it's safer, it's going to be safer because it's going to be a lot less interesting, right? Part of what makes MMA interesting is that by putting just enough padding on this, uh, it makes it me willing to throw enough. And by making me willing to throw enough, I'm creating enough action. So the, the issue is, yes, you're creating more brain trauma, but that's what's selling. Um, I just feel like... I feel like there, there probably is something to be said for the fact that if you got rid of gloves, you might have a slightly less uh, brain traumatizing sport, but I don't think you'd have a more spectator friendly sport. And ultimately that's what we have. Like at some level, we absolutely need to do things to protect the the, the brains of athletes, ongoing tests. Um, I believe not, you guys know my opinion about this. I, I don't think you need no anti-doping apparatus, but I think, the way in which you should switch things is rather than testing for drugs, we should be testing for health, and that includes brain health. And um, and then we create, need to create some limits that tell us if you know if you're certain past a certain point, you know participation in this is not really is not really acceptable. But on the other hand, we just need to fundamentally accept again. I really don't think fighting is a sport. MMA is a sport because we've done enough. We've added enough rules and safeguards and procedures and policies to it to make it a sport. You can almost turn anything into a sport when you do that. But I don't believe fighting is a sport uh, by by itself. We, we, we fight for sports, but our fighting itself, it's a little bit different. And so I guess my point is I'm okay with a little trauma. I'll be honest. Did you guys see when Brandon – it's not my brand on the line. I, I understand that, but – uh, if guys want to go and fist fight for money, I'm not going to be morally horrified by it. I'm just not. Okay. I really, in fact, I'm going to be there fist pumping and donkey kicking. Did you guys see when Brandon Cooks got laid out at the Super Bowl? Took a vicious shot. My Twitter timeline was filled with people. This is a moral atrocity. Look at this owner looking over these, you know, working class plebe- uh, plebeians who are, who are doing, uh, you know, 
they're getting their bread and circus and entertaining him for his delight. I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> what? Like, I'm not saying that's not a vicious shot. I'm not saying you can both realize that there need to be certain limits and safeguards. And at the same time, you can do what I did. I saw that shot and I was like, mm. loved it, loved it. I'm not like wishing trauma on a guy, but I like to watch football for a lot of different reasons, American football. Um, part of it is that it's the, and I know this will sound crazy to Europeans, but you have to believe me on this one. Please believe me. It's the most strategic game in, probably in all of sports because you're going to be like, oh, it's so boring. The reason why it's boring is because they stop and start. And every time they restart, there's a new offensive scheme and everyone has to be exactly where they're supposed to be on certain routes and they have to time it right and they have to run at exactly the right angle. All the pieces of the dominoes have to fall exactly. It's super strategic. The other reason why I like watching it is because people get blown up. Uh, and I don't really feel ashamed ever in saying that. I, I don't know why I'm supposed to. So, so to answer the point about the gloves, I'm really okay with them. Um, because they probably aren't great, but I don't think that going back is any kind of real solution. Even if I don't really argue, I wouldn't argue against the idea that they probably would make MMA safer. Um, there are a lot of ways we need to make sure we're keeping MMA as, as palatable and reasonable as possible, but this one seems like a bridge too far to me. Uh... Income breakdown. I was wondering if you could be kind enough to provide a breakdown of your income without giving actual amounts of by revenue source. For instance, if you could tell us the proportions you get from YouTube versus Sirius versus MMA fighting again. No need to state actual amounts, just relative contributions. Sorry if that's too personal. I'll just say this. I'm not going to give all the amounts away, but I will tell you YouTube. Let me add this up here. I'll do it for my last year's tax returns. Uh, let's see here. Let's see. Okay, so. Uh, YouTube was about 14% of my income. A little, little bit under. 13.8%. There you go, right? I won't say the rest. Just, just out of respect for my... I don't think it's a good idea. <laughs> I, I tried. I tried to be candid on this one. I'll give you a little bit. YouTube was about thirteen point eight percent of my uh, gross income last year, not net, of course, because uh, that changes things a little bit. But there you go. Uh, okay, who would you like to see these guys fight next? So Nate Diaz is the question, and the choices are McGregor, Eddie Alvarez, Woodley, or other. I will say other. Wouldn't mind a Cerrone rematch. Woodley, no. Eddie Alvarez, I think Eddie would just wrestle him. Connor, I'd be in favor of, of course, but I don't know that I need to see that next. Darren Till, Wonderboy, Gunny, Covington, any of them. Can we please get Daryl Till to com Darren Till to com to compete? Please, for the love of God, let's get that guy back in the octagon, man. What are we doing? Alexander Gustafson, Volcon, OSP, Rockhold, or other? I would say other. I still want to see that John Jones rematch. See John Jones out there deadlifting? He had to put up a new video, I think. He was, uh, wasn't was a true deadlift. Not that he's – understand what I'm trying to say. He's doing something called a block pull. There's two kinds of, like, training you can do. Uh, they do different things. 
for um, a deadlift, if just you're trying to hit different parts of the strength continuum, so to speak, um, you can do what's called a deficit deadlift, where you keep the weights as normal, and then you raise your platform, and then you sit on that. Not sit, but you stand on that. So you have to actually get down lower to get the bar. It might help you with, um, especially for sumo, the hardest part of the sumo deadlift is breaking the weight off the floor. So I can help you with that, for example. But you can do it for conventional. You can do it for all kinds of deadlifts. And then another way you can do that is you keep your feet level and then raise the weight a little bit. It's called a block pull. And that might help you with like lockouts or like the middle of your pull. It, just, it depends what, like, what you're trying to do with the block pull. Um, but he hit like some absurd number on a block pull. And, you know, he's kind of, you know, he's still, got, he's muscular, but he's still kind of thin, obviously. Um, pretty impressive numbers. But I still want to see that Gustafson versus... Uh, uh, Jones, Jacques Array, who should be next? Weidman, Gastelum, or Rockhold? Ooh, I like the Weidman fight. Don't you guys? I would take just about any of those, but I like that Weidman fight for some reason. It's a fresh matchup. James Vick, Kevin Lee, Kiesa, Cowboy. The Kiesa fight seems kind of interesting to me, if they can make that one. Uh, I thought I think he's got a little bit of unfinished business elsewhere. Uh, all right, martial arts classes for children. Hi, Luke. Which, in your opinion is the best discipline to get your children involved in in martial arts and at what age? In wrestling, BJJ, karate, any other discipline or MMA classes ahead? Well, let me be very clear about this. There are probably a lot of people more qualified to answer this than I am. I do not have children. Um, I've not had children who are either babies or have grown up, God damn it, who are either babies or who have grown up in some kind of way to answer this question. Let me just say a few things you should consider. Your local BJJ school probably does not make money off of adults, or if it does, not much. The big money it makes, if it's in business in any kind of tenured way, is it could make money from adults. It's possible. Some schools do. Uh, it's not like rare or anything, but a lot of them make money off children's programs. So if you've never trained and you don't have any interest in training, that's okay. But you're a parent out there thinking, hey, you know, I would like to do my bit, my help, my, uh, my part in helping the martial arts community, your local BJJ school could probably benefit from that because like women's cardio kickboxing and children's programs, that's really where they make their money, to be quite honest. Because um, you can do those at massive scale. Um, you know, it's training jujitsu is expensive and a lot of people don't want to do it and it's hard, you know? Like who wants to show up four nights a week and roll around with other people and get their fingers all jacked up and their shoulders and their elbows and their knees and their back? You know, some people do, but most people would rather just do cardio kickboxing or send their kids off to that kind of thing. So keep that in mind. I would just say this. If you're asking me like how I've thought about this, because I do intend on having children, I know it probably frightens some of you that I might reproduce, but I'm gonna. Uh, for me, there's no chance I would take my kid to like strip mall karate. Now, you always have to factor in that your kid might hate everything but strip mall karate, but let's assume that they're at least somewhat amenable to suggestion. To me, it's going to be wrestling or BJJ, no doubt about it. No doubt about it because um, there obviously is injury risk associated with both those sports, including wrestling. There probably is some significant head injury risk, not like football or anything. But, um, you know, and if you join at a BJJ gym, it's an individual sport, but you're also part of a bigger team, a group. And in wrestling, if you're part of a squad, that, that I just feel like being on a team as a kid is really important. But look, if they didn't want to do those, I would say, you know, baseball or I don't know if I'd let my kid play football um, unless they showed a significant degree of talent, which I'm guessing they probably won't because my wife doesn't want them playing that either. Um, and also, I'm, I'm not a great athlete, so there's that as well. Uh, but probably, if you're asking if I had to pick between the two, BJJ or wrestling, I would pick wrestling for me, for my, for my child. Either boy or girl, wouldn't matter. Uh, I just feel like that... Uh, 
RJ Clifford, one of my colleagues, and he uh, is a colleague in MMA media. He uh, made a great point, or he has a great quote that he often quotes from Kale Sanderson, which is, wrestling will fill in the gaps that your parenting misses. Uh, I've always really enjoyed that. I think that's so true. I mean, a few sports not only like occupy a child and makes use of all their energy, but teaches character development in the way that wrestling does. I really love that quote. And not saying jujitsu or even baseball or, you know, geez, I don't know, esports can't necessarily do those things depending on the child and depending on the relation, uh, the, the, the specific nature of the, um, of how things are. But chances are it's going to be wrestling. You got to put these kids to the fire, son. Are there any good kids MMA programs out there? I have no idea. I have no idea. Uh, okay. Let's say the folks at 14-year-old trilogy. Let's say the folks at Paramount get a deal done for Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell to have the culmination of their trilogy on the network. What do you predict their numbers as far as viewership goes? And do they put it on pay-per-view and, and or on the Paramount network? 100% they put that on pay-per-view. Chances are it clears 300,000, probably pretty good, if not higher than that. Um, they would love to do that. They would love to do that. Are you kidding me? Have Chuck Liddell fight on, back on Spike TV or you know, build everything up on Spike TV and then sell it on pay-per-view? Oh, they couldn't be happier about it. Let's see. Foolish Endeavor. Luke, I was thinking about the current state of the UFC, the proliferation of interim titles, mismanagement of weight classes, feast or famine pay-per-views, and the elevation of spectacle over sport. I realize that the company is shopping a new TV deal, but much of what I've much of what it has been doing of late comes off as reactionary, desperate, and directionless. Is this simply the debt load? Because they knew what they were paying going in. Do you think they were banking on Connor or Ronda to play a bigger part and thus ease the financial burden? Or was this pivot away uh, always going to be part of Endeavor strategy? Is this a strategy or a vision at all? I don't think you're really going to have a clear sense of their vision until the next television deal. Because even if they have a vision now, it will largely... Unless they just like re-up their existing deal with Fox. And I don't mean just like, oh, we're going to stay with Fox. We're going to stay with Fox in the same way. Like with the Ultimate Fighter and Fight Nights the way they are. And I mean, just like, like, like literally just copying, pasting the current contract, just changing the dates or something. Uh, uh, unless they do that, um, you're not going to really know what their strategy is until um, we move forward. Now, some of the things they've been sort of, um, there's been a, be a bleeding edge of them. Right. Uh, let's see. You know, some of the ways in which they are going about like shopping, like uh, uh, not shopping. I'm sorry. I'm um, pawning off responsibility on matchmaking off into the fighters, you know, what direction they want to go and um, and things like that. I mean, yes. And then trying to make money off. I mean, look, if they could make an Anderson Silva versus Roy Jones Jr. fight right now, they would 100 percent. They would. And it might do OK, to be quite honest. I don't think it'd do huge, but it'd probably do better than you think it would, um, which is a scary thought. But. I, I would just say they probably did think Connor was going to be more active. They probably thought Ronda would be more active. Remember what they were saying? Joe Rogan was talking about this, that there were WME execs being like, you know, they didn't even know who she was fighting. They thought Ronda was going to go in there and just beat the brakes off of her. There's that too. I, off, I also wonder if they're going to get rid of USADA, to be quite honest. I have no, I have no insight. I don't, I don't know. But like, if you've got a lot of stars, you know, and, and your product's super hot, you can afford to use USADA. 
You know, I don't know if you can afford to use them right now. I know that's going to sound like a crazy thought, but think about this. Imagine if Roy Jones Jr. and Anderson Silva, a fight could be arranged and like all of this sullying of his name had not been, had not, I mean, the one he had with the athletic commission would have happened, but let's say that was a one-time thing, right? He didn't have this current situation. You could make that fight. You could make that fight and it probably would not be a, a terrible sales event. It might be a terrible fight and you could mock it for that, but it would do all right. Plus you'd have John Jones out there competing, what, three times a year. Right. How much of these discussions about, oh, the woes of finding a new television deal and blah, blah, blah. You'd have Brock Lesnar back. Right. And you could say, oh, all these cheaters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, they, people are doping and curling right now for crying out loud. I mean, this is anybody who thinks that this is going in the, the direction of anti doping is just, is just lying to themselves. And I've seen people be like, we should ban people for first offense. Well, then you have no sport. You'd just be getting, you'd just be a mass exodus of talent. Right at some point, you have to sort of come to grips with what you can reasonably stop and what reasonably sells, and there needs to be an intersection of that and an understanding that one kind of needs the other here a little bit. I'm just saying, not getting rid of anti-doping, but having an anti-doping program that the fighters bought into that was somewhat relaxed, maybe even higher than commission standards, but less than USADA, right? And you could say, well, look, you'd just be giving uh, additional cover to cheaters, right? Because by the way, it doesn't matter what you do, the cheaters have cover to some extent, the good ones anyway. Um, so now the rich cheaters can get away with it and the poor ones can't. That doesn't seem very fair. Um, and you're not going to stop it anyway, right? So what you'd be doing is you'd just be sort of coming to terms with the fact that you need guys around to make this product work. It doesn't exist if you don't have enough of them. So why not put ourselves in a position to have more of them? That sounds ghastly, I realize, to many of you, but um, it won't in a few years uh, or, or five to ten years. I think this position will be a lot more common out there. And again, it's not that I don't want to do any testing. I believe in testing for health. I don't believe in testing necessarily for every individual drug. Um, I believe that what you really want to care about, if you really care about the health and safety of fighters, then test for that. Um, and you can do more about weight cutting and a lot of other things. That's what I believe in. I believe in let's measure their health. Let's not measure. Did they have trace amounts of Osterine in there? Oh, God, who cares? Uh, dead horse. I've heard your opposition to additional divisions, but never specifically on this issue below. It seems like fighters like Weidman, Rockle, Romero, Belfour, and Uriah Hall need a 195-pound division. Well, you've heard me address this. Uh, I mean, I could scarcely think of a worse idea. Hey, guys, we've got two divisions that... Yeah, they got some decent fighters like top eight and one and maybe top four and another. Let's drain both of them and put one in the middle. No, no. Again, uh, I, I'm not advocating for vicious cuts. I'm advocating for what makes the sport sell. On some level, you have to come to terms with it. You don't have to do everything to engineer around it, but adding a, another weight class would be a disaster financially. Not not something they're in a, in a business to do. And that, that limits things because in a perfect world, you could have a division for every single pound, right? Um, you could have a 185 and a 186 and a 187 and an 88 and a 90. And a, the whole nine, you could have all of it. Uh, but that's not economically feasible. And so until that is, yeah, no me gusta. No thanks. Fabian Megaman Sharapov, he has indicated on Instagram uh, that he might be fighting Kyle Bokniak at UFC 223. Is this the right fight for Zabit? How do you see this going? I see him beating him, and it is a good fight. It's a good step up from – people think that, like, the um, 
Shaman Morais was just like a nobody. Nah, he beat a real good fighter. Um, and Bokniak's another good fighter, I think, and 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 uh, a good test for Zabit. Still, some there's plenty of like uh, questions. Still, we don't know exactly how good he is. My hunch is that he's extremely good, but but sure, these kinds of incremental tests, even if it's not like I'm not saying that Bokniak's not better than Morais, but let's say for a second, even if it's a lateral move, let's just say it's assumed that it is. Even then, that's a valuable thing for Zabit. Even then, that's a good thing. Like, let's see how good he is, right? Um, I'm all in favor of that. All right, it's about 2.15-ish. So let us go as I take a sip of my gross, disgusting soda. Mmm. Tastes like it's been sitting in a car with the windows rolled up in August. All right, let's go to the Twitter machine. You can send me tweets at L Thomas News. I will do my best to give you my perspective on them. By the way, what is the Real Madrid score? As I says, Leganes. Oh, two to one. Vasquez, Casemiro. All right, very good. Casemiro's been having some issues this season. Uh, okay. not going to get into this. Uh, does the UFC need to have a more long-term way of booking? It seems that other than some movement in the rankings, little is known about the winner's future, even in most main events. I think that's what makes the Belter Grand Prix fun. We know what's next. Right, but the Belter Grand Prix is not selling. Uh, well, at least the other one, the, the one on Friday. Didn't you see the ratings for that? Like 470-something K? Like 476K average? Like usually when there's a big event, um, Jesus Christ, Burns showed up at 186 in Orlando. <sighs> Man, are you kidding? For a lightweight bout? God, that is crazy. Um, in any case, he showed up for one, he showed up at 186 for a 155 or 156 pound weigh in, 30 pounds he would have to lose. On Tuesday. Uh, okay. Back to the question at hand here. Um, the long-term booking. I, I think the USC is trying to give itself some flexibility. I do agree about maybe having clear cues about title shots. They kind of wait for those to kind of materialize. But really, I don't think this is a substantive issue to worry too much about. The only one I'd say that this needs to be some clarity about is just Tony and Habib in April. Because it's like, well, what are they fighting for? Everyone's like, it's so simple. It's an undisputed title. Well, it's not because the undisputed title is held by McGregor. So how can they be fighting for McGregor's title? Oh, well, they'll strip him later. Really? Did they send you a memo saying that? Because unless you know that, you're just speculating, Which, in which case, uh, it's fake news. In which case, nothing about it is simple. There are iterations you can imagine that could be simple. But as it stands today, there's nothing simple about it. So... I don't really think that's the biggest issue in the world. I agree that sometimes the occasional tournament where you know the structure, you can kind of think about how it might play out, can be kind of fun. Um, the four the four team tournament for uh, American college football is really kind of fun when they pick out you know the brackets and and how might this go. Someone called into my show the other day saying that we should change the way we do rankings and and, and like semi annually there should be a committee that kind of reshuffles it from whatever the existing rankings body was giving it, right? Like, in other words, after every event, the same rankings crew changes the rankings as they normally do. And then every once in a while, 
after an event every six months, the committee comes in and just reshuffles it like out of nothing. Um, it's an interesting way to think about it, right? And so as a consequence, that would change some of the matchups and the structures, and and then you could build tournaments around that, mini tournaments like a four-man thing. But generally, I don't really find this to be a really major issue. It doesn't necessarily promote anything. You know, it, when they were trying, people were like, oh, I missed the tournament from Bellator. Look, occasionally some of those tournaments were really great. I'm not going to say they weren't. They were, some of them were great. But then, uh, you know, a lot of y'all are fronting a little bit because I remember when they had tournaments being, it was like, you know, do you really care who is the winner of the quarterfinals of the bantamweight tournaments? Like, doesn't it doesn't really enhance the, your viewing experience in any kind of way. Uh, it can in certain circumstances. So I think narrowing it is fine. Occasional use of fine. That's what you mean? All on board. But as a general rule, uh, I, I don't find it all that troubling. No. Uh, anything to read into the Eric Winter following the new Project Spearhead Twitter account? Mm, no. Not necessarily. Um, Eric Winter is the guy who used to run Fight Pass. He's no longer with them. Maybe he's just curious to see what happens with it. I don't know. Could be, but I don't know for sure. Uh, what can the UFC do to truly make UFC 223 a spectacular event? Considering Connor's timeline, the event needs to do this event needs to do 500k pay per views. This week's uh, uh, oh, they, they said they like this week's Monday Morning Analyst. Uh, well, I appreciate that. Um, I mean, they, they're doing everything they can. UFC 223, I, I think the best thing would be to get Connor there. Short of that, they're putting together a spectacular card, and I think is going to do well. Now, 500K, I don't know, but I I, I, I love this card. I love everything about it. I like the rematch. I like the two title fights. Um, Yeah, it's great. It's really great. So uh, perhaps having him there to like more forcefully incorporate him into the narrative I think would really help them, you know, getting Connor to face off against the winner in the cage probably is a pipe dream, but if you could do it, Hey, that would be big. That'd be super big. Who had or has the best physique in UFC history? That's a strange question. Um, probably Yoel Romero. I'm trying to think about that. I mean, it depends what your best idea is, right? Maybe you could think like like bodybuilder prime Mark Coleman was. Um, but probably the best athlete is Yoel Romero. Would you rather debate Skip Bayless high or, att <laughs> or attend WrestleMania drunk? That is a hilarious question. Wow. Let me think about this. Would you rather debate Skip Bayless high or attend WrestleMania drunk? Um, I would rather debate Skip Bayless high, to be honest. Because being drunk at WrestleMania sounds like Dante's, it just sounds like the ninth circle of hell in this one. Um, debating Skip Bayless is not difficult. Being high might make it difficult. But it could also make it easier because it can make you talkative, which can make you like the only way that you can really beat him is he'll never relent. But if you can just talk more than him, you can win. 
So that would be helpful. You know, I've had a real change of thinking on about about Skip Bayless a little bit. Not a ch- you know, somewhat of a change, I suppose. Like everybody hates on him. And look, here's the deal. He obviously says incredibly stupid and insane things just for money. That's what he does, right? That's what he does. But at the end of the day, it's like, how many people in media are making money, especially that kind of money? And at some point you can say, well, do you really need to say that many stupid things to get that kind of money? Well, maybe not. But uh, at the same time, like, you know, just media is so uncertain these days and it's hard to make money in media if it was super certain. And what are you going to do? You're going to take all your super smart takes with you to the grave. Oh, people will remember you so fondly. The Internet's going to tear you up for all the dumb things you said, which is inevitable. You might as well just get paid before you get put in the dirt and eaten by worms. And that's what Skip's doing. Skip's sort of like, like you you idiots out there who think that, like, I'm going to make a difference with my really smart and informed take. Like, 1% of 1% of 1% of people really do anything like that. Most of us just say stuff that all gets forgotten. You might as well get paid along the way to do it. And he's going to get remembered as a troll, but he's going to have a nice home. And, you know, he's going to be sipping, you know, margaritas by the pool of his home uh, before he croaks. It's like... You know, who got the last laugh on that one? Oh, he'll, be, he'll not be remembered fondly. He'll not be remembered fondly by the same people whose opinion he doesn't care about? I don't know. There's something. To be, there's a little more science to him than... The question is, can you bring... The, here's the real question for somebody like in my position. And you can disagree with me all the times that you want. And you can say you might say I have dumb opinions, and, and that's fine. Like, But like, here's what I'm not doing. I'm not saying dumb things I don't believe for money. Like, I'm not specifically out there being like, who can I rile up? you know, to get super paid, right? Because you can disagree with my anti-doping takes, but they're not, like, people aren't coming to me, like, put me on ESPN to make money off of them, right? But um, but imagine, like, imagine if they did. Would you do it, right? What, what, is, what do you think he makes a year? Boy, two, two and a half mil a year, probably? Probably maybe more than that, right? That's probably what he makes. He's a, he's a solid year-over-year multimillionaire, Okay. Uh, would you do it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's tempting. It's tempting. So I think just arguing with him being like, did you hear what Skip Bayless has said? It's like, yeah, he says, he's a, he says buffoonish things on purpose, like trying to parse the, and I've done this, believe me, I'm so guilty of this. It's insane. But like trying to parse the merits of his argument. What are you doing? So he's not making an argument to be parsed. He's making an argument to see all the people out there get triggered. That's what he's doing. Or to, you know, hey, I, well, I love it this time, so this is great, you know. That's what he's. That's what it's there for. He's getting paid to do it. Like, is that is that automatically worse than everyone else? You know, I'm going to spend – I saw this guy on, on – uh, he wrote some article about um, – there was a scandal in – I think it was Oklahoma. Could be a different state, but I believe it was Oklahoma – using uh, a sketchy provider uh, and a sketchy substance to help with lethal injections, legal lethal injections, of course. But, you know, were those doses appropriate? And who is this manufacturer of this? And there was like something sketchy about it. It took him three years to write the article. I bet he got like zero reads on that thing, even though it's like critically important. You know, who 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 has the last laugh on that one? I don't know, you know. Um, got a little deep with that one, huh? Let's see. 
How funny was it that the UFC thought turning from that Lewis post-fight interview to Nate Diaz was a good <laughs> Was that not the greatest thing you'd ever seen in your life? They're like, I'm going deep, you know? And then they turn to Nate, and Nate's like, you know? It's just, just, I mean, poetic. Poetic in its brilliance, right? Just so awesome. Loved it. Um, let's see. Will UFC fighters and robots ever be able to coexist by 2019? I wouldn't worry about robots fighting in 2019. Let me assure you that. Like four robots questions. Which MMA fighter continuing to fight depresses you the most? Bob Sapp, Crazy Horse Bennett. And Bigfoot Silva come to mind. Well, Bob Sapp and Crazy Horse are just going to have their own lives, but the Bigfoot Silva one, because he's just taken an inordinate amount of damage. Crazy Horse had these long periods of inactivity, and Bob Sapp just you know takes a shot and dives. Um, so probably Bigfoot Silva is a Bader versus Mitrione heavyweight tourney final a given right now? And who, if anyone, could spoil that? No, it won't be a final because they're on the same side of the bracket. It might be a semifinal. We'll have to see in May when um, Bader and King Mo fight. But if you're asking me, is that, is that a probable semifinal for that tournament? Yes. Yes, it is. Mm, 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 mm. Someone says, Dana, be gone. I am done with Dana being the president. If you had your choice, who would you put in his place and why? Uh, yeah, you know what? Uh Here's what's interesting. Um, what's my major criticism of Dana White? People, I, I, I was right about him and I was wrong about him, like most things, you know, half right, half wrong. Well, the thing I thought that was wrong about him that I got wrong, although it was partly right too, but I thought that the way he was going out there, everyone was like, oh, it's so refreshing to have an executive say all these like incredibly outrageous things because, you know, you know, Roger Goodell comes out there and is very composed and just looks like a, you know, bureaucratic bootlicker. And Dana rejected all of that. And there was something kind of refreshing about that. But then you just sort of realize, like, why do the Roger Goodells of the world say what they say in the manner that they say it? It's because if you don't, there's significant blowback down the line. Now, it's not like he's some revered figure. But the point being is, um, I think that acts grew tiresome for a lot of people. And also that, you know, you can damage relationships doing those kinds of things. So that's why people don't do it. There's an inherent reason why they, they don't do those kinds of things. And um, I thought that would be his undoing, and it wasn't. However, what the UFC has is a challenge, because you're asking about who would replace him. I really don't know. But here's what I do think is probably one of the bigger issues. He obviously plays a massively important role in being the guy who um, – brought UFC to where it is today, right? I mean, massively, massively, massively important, right? But as I mentioned before, with sort of the face the pain stuff, they're tied to this notion of this time capsule of 2005. And um, the question and the challenge really for Dana is, can he, can he move beyond himself in that regard? So much of this is defined by his own personal aesthetics and his own personal taste. And that's somewhat his right, I mean, if not outright his right. I mean, this is, you know, He's the president or and, and was for a time the owner. Um, 
but it's pretty clear that some kind of refresh is needed. And if he wants to stay, it's not like I have a choice about whether he stays or he doesn't. But my hunch is that his his the extent to which he is valuable, because it's not in corralling fighters anymore, that strength relationship is now almost entirely evaporated. The issue now is, can he get out of his own way? Or can he bring in other people around him who can help with this issue of modernity in the brand that that really to me might end up being as i'm doing was that he was perfect for the time in which they came up for all the good and the bad that it, that it had the question is um who's good for this time because he appears to be a little bit locked in that time and now that time has expired that really to me is the is the bigger question here uh, in play all right so i appreciate you guys watching like i said before do me a favor uh, subscribe to MMA Fighting Below. Like this video. By the way, if you didn't check out the Monday Morning Analyst, I'd say it's pretty good. Give it a give it a look on how Cowboy beat Donald Cerrone. It turns out right hand to the body, left hand up top is a big uh, is the nucleus of his operations. So I do a good uh, I, I try to do a good job explaining that. But I would appreciate any feedback. You can send that at LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for watching. I greatly appreciate it. There is an MMA beat tomorrow. I will be on it. Uh, and uh, yeah. So enjoy that and UFC Orlando this weekend. I will see you all next week. And until then, stay frosty.